podcast is brought to you by LMU Munich. Okay, well, thank you. I'll, um, whoops, wrong way. Add my contribution as the, uh, the third tenor, and it's good to see so many of you still here. And um, despite the sun shining out there in uh, Munich, and we've been waiting three days for the, the sunshine. So, with experimental studies, uh, I suppose the the, uh, the challenge for us is that uh, we have access to as many tissues as, as, at as many time points and from as many models as you can think of. So how do we try and assimilate that to give us some comprehensive um, understanding which can then feed in with the epidemiological studies to inform what are the types of nutritional interventions that we should do to ultimately improve the long-term outcome of um, the, the future generation. And given that the, the price of a, a nutritional intervention from, uh, the, from the um, industrial point is one to five million euros going upwards, actually utilizing an appropriate animal model in which we know uh, in more detail what the mechanisms are, obviously gives us the opportunity to make a much more cost-effective intervention. And this, this first slide just summarizes the uh, the complexity of the um, challenge before us. We know that uh, the metabolic syndrome composes um, a plethora of adaptations, high, high blood pressure, increased uh, adiposity, uh, glucose intolerance, and this is manifested in a range of uh, um, tissues. We see changes in adipose tissue function, uh, lipid handling of glucose and fat, changes in cardiovascular system, how the brain functions, um, changes in pancreatic function, and lipid deposition across the, across the organs. And I think what we would argue from, from the experimental studies is that clearly this is a developmental pathway. Metabolic syndrome does not just suddenly appear. It's a gradual process. And even going back to, let's say, 20 years ago when I was working for Paul Johnson at the University of Oxford, even then we were talking about when people were, talk, were, were having symposium where they're looking at particular disease pathways, they should always have a, a developmental uh, researcher talk, talking there, talking about how this process develops with time and um, how this may be manifested or amplified by the pre, postnatal and diet in later life. And if you actually then step back further and think about the whole uh, development of an organ from uh, uh, fertilization, embryogenesis, uh, placentation, growth of the fetus, postnatal growth, we know that there are a number of critical windows. Um, we can talk, which are just some of the key points are just summarized here. We know that any of these particular windows, if you change the maternal diet, the environment, then you can have significant effects both at that time in which the modification is uh, induced, and then these may then um, not become apparent in terms of clinical manifestation at, during this period, but we know as the animal gets older, or the individual, or the human gets older, as they're exposed to a different uh, nutritional environment, be that the obesogenic environment that we're currently um, dealing with in terms of uh, developed countries or those populations that are in transition in which they're going from an, uh, uh, an environment in which they have 
potentially lower nutrition in early life and then exposed to greater nutrition in later life, it's perhaps not surprising that changes in the structure, the genetic, uh, genetic uh, sensitivity, the epigenome, and other adaptations become um, manifest later on. And just one example of a tissue that has a very uh, critical role in the fetus, and they maybe has a less, a less important role uh, in later life, is uh, adipose tissue. Because we know that one of the big challenges for the newborn is to adapt to the thermal challenge of the extrauterine environment. Therefore, newborn of all the mammalian species, perhaps except the pig, have to be readily uh, endowed with brown adipose tissue could then be switched on to enable the newborn to adapt to that thermal challenge after birth. And then this brown adipose tissue disappears, uh, recently thought to for large mammals to disappear, never to reappear, but that may not be the case anymore, and is then either replaced or becomes white adipose tissue. And when we're thinking about how a nutritional insult in early life may affect later life, we need to take into account the very different role and function of that tissue in the newborn and in the early postnatal period, and how this may adapt and change as the animal or the individual gets older. But we now know that brown adipose tissue is present in adults, and this is dependent in part uh, by the time of year that, you, that the individual may be studied. This is the same individual, adult individual, uh, undergoing a PET-CT scan. That red arrow there just shows where the brown fat is, which is perhaps in a very different position to where it may be present primarily in newborn. But you can clearly see that there's more brown fat in that individual in the winter months compared to the summer months. And this has sort of uh, uh, galvanized the whole new area of or increased it, um, under excitement of how adipo brown adipose tissue may be reactivated in adults, and thereby being one mechanism by which if you can increase heat production from brown fat, then maybe you could um, overcome some of the uh, negative effects of low activity, uh, increased, energy in, increased energy intake in relation to the whole energy equation balance. And a further complication though in terms of how we um, now looking at adipose tissue and its whole regulation is that it appears that both the brown fat and skeletal muscle may have a very different, um, or may have a similar origin, which is very different to white adipose tissue. And this is just summarized in this cartoon here. Uh, it seems that every month there's a whole new series, series of reviews going into further detail about this. But I think what, what um, we, we need as developmental physiologists and nutritionists need to um, uh, consider is that the most the time in which brown fat is being laid down and when it's most abundant is in the newborn. So potentially if we could um, um, undertake nutritional interventions that maybe increase the amount of brown fat, delay the, the rate at which brown fat is delayed in that early postnatal period, then ultimately this may then result in, in population-wide increase in brown fat, thereby increasing overall thermogenesis and maybe um, increase the um, um, overall metabolic health of the individual. But the key thing about brown fat 
is the differences in its mitochondrial function. And we've heard uh, a number of uh, presentations throughout this meeting from a number of animal, different animal models showing that uh, mitochondrial function appears to be critical for the overall metabolism and metabolic health of the individual, um, affecting reactive oxygen species, for example. And so I think an, an increased understanding of how mitochondria function is um, regulated early on and how this may ultimately affect the metabolic health is obviously critical to, to this. And brown adipose tissue is just one example of how this differs through the life cycle and how we can potentially target this to try and improve uh, long-term outcomes. And then another level of uh, complexity, and one is which has, um, I think, taken off over the last five years during the lifetime of Ernest, is the role of epigenetics and how this may... Um, is this just a marker of, of the changes that are going on? How does this affect um, tissue function, gene function, transcription, and all the things that we're interested? Is there potential to um, alter the diet, to ultimately have changes in the epigenetic uh, regulation of, of um, say, appetite control or adipose tissue function? And we're just at the, t uh, the tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding that, and this is just summarizes um, some results that Rebecca Simmons presented in which um, they were looking at the pancreas from interuterine growth restricted uh, rat pups or rats at 35 days of age and using these new uh, um, omic technologies we can now identify clear pathways and mechanisms which may be affected and this is just from one tissue at one age under one, one, one model so clearly we now have the opportunity to take this technology to look at how this may change with development, to ultimately have a better understanding of how the different tissues and organs uh, interact, and ultimately how we can maybe get an overall uh, taking this one step further on a whole um, body process, looking at every single organ in the, in the body, and seeing how we can try and integrate that to look at the critical pathways, and how, maybe how we can upregulate or downregulate particular pathways to ultimately improve metabolic health and then feed this back into the um, epidemiological and uh, nutritional interventions during um, early life. And now Bert will uh, just now finish off by just making some concluding remarks and showing how the knowledge that we've attained over the last five years can be assimilated into future studies which will um, capitalize on the progress we've made over the last five years. Thank you.